Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So this morning we are continuing yet again <laughs> through the, the road less traveled, and we're going to come to the end of this little cul-de-sac that, uh, that we've kind of stopped on through uh, Lamentations and Habakkuk, and today we're going to be looking at the book of uh, Zephaniah, and then we're going get, to get back on the, the more traveled, less traveled road. Uh, <laughs> and the book of Zephaniah is another one of those places in the Bible that we probably don't see a lot of scripture quoted from. You know, I would say maybe we don't necessarily have as many, many verses that, that we have committed to memory from that book. But every time I have been preparing for this, this teaching, every time I've been preparing for, for what we're going to hear this morning, this repetitive phrase just keeps coming to mind week after week after week. And, you know, I, I share it with you because, you know, I, I want you to, to take it and, and make it real in your life, but it, it's just as important for me. And that's this truth that there is no wasted space in the Bible, that there are no wasted pages in God's word. And, and so often we, we relegate entire portions of scripture to well, yeah, I just blaze through that when it comes up in my reading guide, and I don't, I don't take any time to, to really think about what does this mean to me. And, and this book specifically, this, these sections of books specifically are, are books that I would say are probably most likely to fall into that camp because, let's face it, some of these are just depressing. <laughs> Matt, are you supposed to say that about the Bible? Well, <laughs> they are. My goodness, they are. If you look at like the first two chapters of the book of Zephaniah, you're like, man, this is like, I just need to like go out in the sunshine and like go eat some candy or something like this. This is not really uplifting. This morning, we're going to talk about how God punishes sin. <laughs> That the God who punishes sin, though, is the God who has taken away judgment against you. That he lives amongst us, that he, he loves and delights in us. That he gathers together all who are weary, all who are torn, all who are broken. He gathers them together. This morning, we're going to cover one of the most important issues that we need to settle in our own lives. It would be great if that most important issue was one that we could just deal with once and move on and never see it again. But my experience is that this is going to be probably a, a, a recurring item that comes up on our, on our spiritual checklist of things that we need to deal with. I can't, I can't overemphasize how important this is. And it comes from, from two different questions that we're going to look at. What do you think God thinks about you? And what can you do about it? What do you think that God thinks about you? And what can you do about it? 
So first, what, what do you think God thinks about you? Is he happy with you? Is he disappointed? Is he let down? Is he like, after everything I've done, can you just get it together even a little bit? Does he just put up with you? And the second yet equally important question, what can you do about it? How can you influence what God thinks about you? These questions are big. These questions probably aren't questions that you came to church this morning saying, I, I know the answers to these. I, I, it's right at the tip of my tongue. I know exactly what it is. But these are big because what we think about God determines almost everything about our lives. What we think about God directly influences my relationship with him. If I think that God is just putting up with me, how does that influence the, the relationship that I have? Am I going to, to openly share the things that are going on in my day? Am I going to, to want to be in relationship with somebody who's just like barely hanging on with interest to what I'm, I'm going through? No. So let's look at, at the book of Zephaniah. So again, I, I won't blame you if you haven't necessarily spent, you know, months and months and, and you know, all of your time recently going through the book of Zephaniah. It's, it's what the most Bible scholars call a minor prophet. And no, it's not minor because it's insignificant. <laughs> Minor means that it's not as long as some of the other books of prophecy like uh, Jeremiah or Isaiah or some of those other ones. Again, the, the problem that we face, the difficulty, the challenge that we face when we're, we're going through a, a book like this is that it can be discouraging. So who was Zephaniah? He was a prophet who served during the reign of Josiah, around 640 to 609 BC. And we, we may know a little bit about Josiah. There's kind of this one thing that sticks out about Josiah, right? He, he was a king when he was eight, right? And, and we, over time, see all of these different kings come through Israel and Judah that were terrible, that did not follow the ways of God, that, that continually fell away, continued to introduce the people to idol worship, continued to, to drift away from the commands that God had made. And so what, really, if we want to just think about Judah's history, Israel had already been exiled. Everything that was going on in Judah at the time wasn't great. But then King Josiah comes along, and he was made king when he was eight years old, and then 18 years later, they're cleaning out a back room in the temple. I just like thinking it was a back room, like where they kept the brooms, and, <laughs> and like the maintenance guy like is getting rid of stuff out of a cabinet that has like a bunch of old cleaning supplies in it. And, and at the very bottom of the cabinet is, is this book or this scroll. And they're like, what's that doing here? And they, they get it out and they start looking at it. And as they start reading this scroll, 
People just begin to weep. And right away, they understand the importance of what it is they found. And, and they bring this scroll in front of the king and, and they say, King, you, you have to look at this. This is super important. We've been doing everything wrong. Everything that, that we have been doing from the, the way that we get up in the morning to the way that we, we bless the food that we eat, everything that we have been doing up to this point has been wrong in the sight of God. And so the, the, the king reads what, he is, what has been found and he, he is so distraught that he rips his clothing. And he begins to institute the, the laws that have been found, the, the commands that have been found in this scripture. And over time, the, the nation of Judah is, is brought back to God. And so eventually things start to go better. And, and it's during this time, Zephaniah 1.1, we see that, that he is giving this prophecy during the reign of King Josiah. So there's a time of darkness, but it's also, there is hope to be had. So what do we learn from Zephaniah as we, we go through and read it? And Honestly, if you leave here this morning and, and you just say, man, I, I wonder what the book of Zephaniah has to, to say to me. It's literally like three chapters long, okay? This is like a 15-minute sit down and, and take a look. The first thing that we see when we read the book of Zephaniah is that God is as angry at sin as we think he is. If you read the first two-thirds of the book of Zephaniah, you probably wouldn't like it very much. Chapter one, God is going to judge the nation of Judah. In chapter two, what, verses one through three, it says, you can still repent, that's still possible. And then chapter two, God is going to judge all of the nations around Judah. And then chapter three, verses one through seven, God is going to judge Jerusalem too. Somebody summarized the message of most of the book of Zephaniah is this, one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. The totality of the cosmos shall be consumed in his burning anger. The very order of creation shall be overturned. Well, let's go there. So, um, so this is bad. This is not good. The first part of Zephaniah, the majority of the book of Zephaniah is exactly what we are afraid of, that God is angry at sin and that people that are committing sin are in the crosshairs for judgment. Oh dear. And it's only a matter of time before the rest of the world is in trouble as well. That's, that's what it says. And we need to pause for a minute and consider this because this is really difficult for us to accept. It's, it's hard for us to accept this. A lot of people have a hard time accepting that God could really be that harsh. 
A lot of people would, would just say, well, why is God that way? Why does, why can't he just love everyone? Why does he have to be that way? And it's, it's interesting because it's very easy for us to accept that God is a loving God. It's, it's very easy to accept that God is merciful. And yet we hate the idea of a God who could judge and hold us accountable for what we have done wrong. Not recognizing that both of those things are indicative of a God who loves. We, we struggle with a God who is angry at sin, who, who spends most of a book warning us about judgment that's going to come. Why do, why do we think that? Why do we feel that way? There's a, a quote from another author that, that does a really good job of helping us understand it. And I had never, I had never put it together this way. So think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, in this case it's a female author, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves." If you look at, at the choices of someone you love, that, that you're just watching them make choice after choice, decision after decision that is incredibly detrimental to them. You just see them destroying their lives. Whether it's through addiction or whether it's through other sin that, that is going on, they, there are choices that are being made and you are angry. You're angry that that is what's, what is happening to that person. How much more so does that anger God? I think sometimes what happens is we want, we want our sin to be treated like when we go to the doctor's office and we're like, man, my, my shoulder's kind of not feeling super great. I hope there's nothing wrong. And, and you go to the doctor's office and the doctor's like, oh, it's, it's fine. Just like, you know, don't do this particular action for a couple of weeks and it's going to be back to normal. We don't want to go to the, the doctor's office and say, yeah, it looks like every muscle in your shoulder is torn and we're going to have to do invasive surgery to make sure that it, you can actually use it by the time you know, you're 40. That's not what we want to hear. We don't want the extreme. And yet what we see here is we are showing up and God is saying, this is how bad your sin is. This is, it is as bad as you think it is. And what we see the prophet Zephaniah doing is he's, he's coming to the people and he is saying, the sin that is existing in this place, in this city, in this time, in this nation is as bad as we all think it is. 
And God is as upset with this sin as we think he is. And in order for us to have any chance of recovery, any chance of moving forward, we first have to face the severity of the sin that exists in our life. That's what Zephaniah is saying. And it would be so convenient if we could just stand here and say, well, that was great for the kingdom of Judah. Man, I'm so glad that that isn't something that we have to deal with today. It's not. That, that, that's not the way it works. But I have good news that the, the hope that is talked about in the book of Zephaniah, that hope is pointing to one man. The hope that we have in life and death is in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, I, I am in that same boat where sin is in my life. I am, have the, the problem of sin in my life, and yet the solution to the problem of sin has already been posted. The solution is Jesus. Another author says, what we need to make clear with our bumper stickers and cultural content writings is that the love that wins is a holy love. The love that won on the cross and wins the world is a love that is driven, determined, and defined by holiness. It is a love that flows out of the heart of God who is transcendent, majestic, infinite in righteousness, who loves justice as much as he does mercy, who hates wickedness as much as he loves goodness, who blazes with a fiery, passionate love for himself above all things. He is creator, sustainer, beginning and end. He is robed in a splendor and eternal purity that is blinding. He rules, he reigns, he rages and roars, and then he bends down to whisper love songs to his creation. We don't serve a sentimental God. We don't serve a domesticated God. We serve a God who is so full of passion and blazing emotion that he burns in the ferocity of his infinite love for you. God is as angry at sin as we think he is. But thankfully, there's more. <laughs> thankfully, there is the other portion of this. And we're back. Do 
You guys are lucky I even picked up on that. Most of the time I don't even hear. <laughs> God is over the top in his grace to sinners that only deserve judgment. And in case you're wondering, that's, that's everybody. Um, a few minutes ago, I quoted somebody who summarized the, the message of the, the first few chapters of Zephaniah saying, you know, one of the most awesome descriptions of wrath of God and judgment found anywhere in scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. The totality of the cosmos shall be consumed in his burning anger, blah, blah, blah. Nothing good, right? This is what he has to say about uh, chapter three, verses nine through 20. One of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in scripture appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. God and his people attain heights in the ecstasy of love that are hard to comprehend. It's important for us to know how seriously God takes sin. That, that's important to know, but it is also important for us to know how God gives over-the-top grace to a people who are tired, to a people who are worn out, to a people who are scattered. It is important for us to look at this and see how God overcomes our guilt, how God overcomes our shame. So what does this passage say? Zephaniah 3.14 says, rejoice and sing. If we look at this scripture, we see that there, there are all of these different uh, expressions that are used to tell us to rejoice, to come and to, to bring praise. That's a, an odd thing to turn to. You know, sure, okay, we know that we're supposed to come and we're supposed to worship God, but it seems like a strange thing to come on the heels of, of the wrath of God literally consuming the entire universe, rejoice and sing. Really? We, we can rejoice and sing because God is complex. The, the God of judgment, the God of wrath, is also the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. If you look at Psalm 103, 8 through 9. Why are we supposed to rejoice? Because I can look back at my life, just like that song that we sang, all my life, he has been faithful. I can look back time after time after time at the goodness of God exemplified in my life and I can see it and I know that coming into the future, it will also be good. Zephaniah wrote these words 600 years before Jesus was born. But they all point to what Jesus has accomplished. Everything that, that is talked about in this section of chapter three in the book of Zephaniah can ultimately be true only because Jesus accomplished it. 
He has taken away our judgments. He has dealt with our enemies in verse 15. What do you do when you recognize that you are a far greater sinner than you had realized that you were? <laughs> what, what is the response when you recognize that, that these areas of sin exist in your life, that, that you are so much worse off than you initially realized that you were? Because that's what happened to these people. They, they found this book in, this, in the broom closet. They started reading it, and all of a sudden, like, my goodness, we are way worse off than we thought we were. And God is way more angry at sin than we realized he was. I can rejoice. I can rejoice because God has taken away my judgment. He has dealt with my enemies. He has dealt with the enemy of guilt. He has dealt with the enemy of shame. There's another author that says, that guilt says, I broke the law, and shame says, I am broken. Guilt says, we have done something wrong, and shame says, there is something wrong with us, and yet God has dealt with both of them. Zephaniah 3.15 says that the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And the amazing thing in all of this is that God did all of that. He took away the judgments. He cleared away the enemies. He was able to come into the midst of the people, never again allowing them to fear evil. He was able to do all of that but, while at the same time never once compromising his holiness. Never once saying, well, yeah, we'll just forget about that. We'll just sweep that under the rug. We don't need to worry about that. He maintained his holiness. God is both holy and and merciful. Jesus doesn't only come and judge evil, but he takes the hell and the judgment on himself. Jesus bore our sins so that there's no longer any judgment against someone who trusts him. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sin of my past, the sin of my present, and the sin of my future has all been dealt with on the cross. Sing aloud and rejoice. The God of holiness has dealt with our sin and he has taken away that judgment against us. He loves and delights in his people. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. There is a, a story that I, I've heard a couple of different times. I don't know if this is just a pastor looking for a good illustration or if this is actually a real thing that happened. We'll just say it was real. Um, <laughs> there is a wedding. And this wedding was in one of those churches that has just a super deep, long aisle. And 
this couple had been engaged for, I don't know, maybe you know, a little less than a year. They, they'd known each other really since childhood. And as the bride comes and the, the wedding march plays and everybody stands up, normally good-mannered uh, grooms are supposed to stay at the, the altar and, and wait for their bride to come, right? And yet this groom starts just booking it down the aisle to greet his soon-to-be bride and to, to bring her to the altar with him. That's what God does. God doesn't just wait for us to come to him. He, he runs to us to, to be with us. Isaiah 62 5 says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's how much he loves us. I'm throwing a lot of quotes at you today. I've got another one. This is from John Piper. It says, we must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though Christ found a loophole in the law and did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No, God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with all the bells on. He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. He shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation and leads in the festival dance. God loves you. God rejoices over us. He exults over us with loud singing. I've mentioned it before, but have you ever stopped to consider what it is like to hear God singing over you? Think about all of the naturally occurring sounds in creation. Think of the sound that the sun makes. We don't know what the sound the sun makes, but from what I hear, it's really loud. <laughs> it's super loud, like kill you loud. <laughs> and yet it's just as beautiful as the sound of a, a a crackling campfire with two logs on it. The sound of, of a, a dripping forest. The sound of a waterfall. The, the sound of the ocean waves. All of these sounds are, are nothing compared to the voice of God singing over you. In Zephaniah 3, 18 through 20, it talks about how God will gather all who are weary and worn. Do you get weary? Are you hurting? Are, are there those of us here today who are worn out? Maybe you're worn out because of bad choices that you're making. <laughs> Did, do we ever find ourselves in that situation? Where we're like, man, this is really hard. I, I should have just not done this to begin with. Yeah, 
<laughs> there, there's definitely those situations. Are, are there times where we're weary and worn out because of circumstances that we don't have any control over? You bet. Are, are there times where we're weary and we're worn out because we're moving in the direction that God has called us to move? Yep, that can happen too. But there is hope. And there is hope in the same book that says that the wrath of God will consume all of the cosmos of the earth. There is still hope. It says, I will gather those of you who mourn so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame. I will gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God says, you may be in this situation today. You may be facing difficulty and hardship today, but just as I have been faithful every time to my people, to the people who are called by my name, I will be faithful tomorrow too. I asked you at the beginning, what do you think God thinks about you and what can you do about it? Here is the answer. God rejoices in saving you. He delights in saving you. And what can you do about it? You can receive it. That's all you can do. You can rejoice in it. You can let that reality change everything about you from the ground up. Everything about you can be transformed when you recognize that God rejoices in saving you. If that becomes my reality, if, if that becomes where what I build my life upon, it is so much more than me just doing more. One author says that being more accomplishes more than doing more. If, if I stop and recognize that I am more because God says I am more, if that is the case, then I don't have to, my best efforts stop mattering. It, it, it's not a matter of my effort to bring about something, to conjure up God doing great things for me or to conjure up God doing great things for someone else. It's now me being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus has nothing to do with me. I get to receive my strength by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the holy God, the God who punishes sin, has taken away your judgment. He lives among you. He loves and delights in you. He gathers all who are weary and worn out. That's why we rejoice. That's why this book matters to us today. Because of that. Because we can come and the God that punishes sin has taken away the judgment. This isn't just something that was great 
for the people of Judah back at that time, and it's just something for us to look at with some historical view. No, this is relevant to me today because I'm worn out. This is relevant to me today because sometimes I feel broken. This is relevant to me today because I do dumb things. I sin, and yet God has dealt with it. I can rejoice and I can be glad even in the midst of of my failings, even in the midst of my sufferings and my trial and my hardship. I can be glad and rejoice because the God that I serve lives among his people. The God who I serve loves and delights in me. The God who I serve gathers the weak and the weary and the worn out together. And he brings rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are always faithful. God, we thank you that your word is relevant, just as relevant the day that it was first written, to the day that we receive it this morning. God, it is real and it is alive. Lord, the the hope that is being talked about in these pages is the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And God, as we, we come this morning to the communion table, we come to this time of remembering what has been done for us. We come to this time of recognizing that that through the blood of Jesus, I have a hope, a hope in this life and a hope after. God, we come to the the communion table this morning and we we thank you for who you are, for the, the gift that has been given, for a sinless life that was lived and a sinless life that was laid down for us. God, we come this morning and we proclaim your goodness. Your goodness in, in taking on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. So this morning we're going to move to the communion table. The song that I had picked out for this morning starts with a question. It says, what is our hope in life and death? And I thought it it was fitting for this to be the song that we sang after our, our teaching time this morning because we have answered that question. Our hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. Our confidence is found in Jesus Christ. He holds everything in his hands. And so this morning, as we come to this communion table, as we come to participate in this this direction that has been given, consider that question, what is our hope in life and death?
Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 